Taking Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca. This podcast is made out of CFUV 101.9 in Victoria, on the traditional and unceded territories of the Songhees and Wasanish peoples. You're listening to Taking Up Space, CFUV's intersectional feminist podcast, and I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this series, we feature unheard and marginalized voices as folks from the community speak up and speak out about key topics that matter to them. This episode features conversations on allyship in all of its forms. It can be difficult to understand allyship as it is a multifaceted, complex idea that changes in relation to the needs and situations of the individual or individuals you're supporting. Allyship is a concept that can often feel vague or be misunderstood. It's an ongoing conversation and evolution of education and understanding. To explore this broad idea and gain a better understanding of what allyship looks like in practice, we've got with us today Tadaruzumi, the author of The Selfish Activist's Guide to Allyship, Sharon, the president of the LGBT support group PFLAG, and Bradley, a member of the Men's Circle, a branch of UVIC's anti-violence project. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us for this episode on allyship. Uh, please take a moment to introduce yourselves. My name is Sharon, and I'm with PFLAG. It started off 40-plus years ago as parents, friends, and family of lesbians and gays, but now our umbrella is much wider and encompasses many more letters in the alphabet. <laughs> we have been operating in Victoria since 1994, and uh, we've been fortunate to be in the same location since that time. started off basically around somebody's kitchen table as parents that were looking for a way to get cool with their kids coming out. And uh, we continue to be there for those that uh, need support in coming out or people who need to get up to speed with, um, with where their kids are at or where their parents are at. You know, we're there for people whose spouses have uh, just come out. So yeah, we're just sort of a peer-to-peer support group that uh, is there for each other and uh, trying to make the world a better place. My name is Bradley. I'm a settler of English and Scottish descent born here on Lekwungen territory. And uh, I have been in, involved with the uh, men's circle that uh, falls under the umbrella of the Anti-Violence Project here on campus. Caveat is that I uh, have not been involved in the coordinating collective for the last short while, but I was involved at, uh, close to the founding. And the men's circle is uh, supposed to be a space where male and masculine identifying folks can come together to discuss how we can support each other in being better allies, in holding ourselves and each other accountable, and in trying to be less of a source of and more of an intervention in violence and patriarchy in our communities. Uh, my name is Tada Hozumi, but I guess like I'm a person of color, Asian person, genderqueer, hyphenated Canadian, as they call it, Japanese Canadian. Nikkei, and uh, my background is in expressive arts and body-centered therapy. What I do now is what I call allyship coaching. I know everybody's a coach these days, but like, but, <laughs> but you know, allyship work on an individual and a collective level is like the thing I work on. Um, and also kind of maybe some breaking some of the boxes of what we thought allyship is to really help us create more nurturing relationships and community because I think allyship is like one of the most basic relationships. Thank you. Uh, so first off, let's talk a bit about how you started your journey into allyship. You all identify as allies. Uh, so what was it that made you decide to become a feminist ally? I would say that my journey started in little bits and pieces at first. My eldest brought home a friend for lunch one day. They were in grade eight. The friend was grade nine. And um, I had very, very um, strong religious background. 
and upbringing and uh, very tight ideas on how that things are supposed to be. I'd never really given people outside of my box a lot of space. But um, this grade nine boy walked into my house for lunch and it was sort of an, uh, an aha moment for me. I realized, wow, this boy is probably teased at school because he's just, you know, the way he talks and gestures and walks, this would be a target. And I thought, he's not making this up. This is who he is. He is genuine. And that was a real aha moment for me, just sort of realizing people don't don't decide to be like this. And it was a few years after that that both of my kids came out. And uh, so I have become an ally in little pieces at first and then in great strides as I realized that, uh, yeah, my world was very black and white before and now it's full of rainbows so it's a much bigger world than the one that I started off in. Thank you. How about you Bradley? I I think it's really just that I've been so lucky to have people in my life who have been willing to explain things to me and uh, have a lot of patience. So thinking about it probably the moment that I can say, okay, this is when I started to realize that I needed to go more in this direction was when I was at Camosun College and through a really random and probably not well thought out uh, course of events ended up on the student society there. And um, it happened that a few of the other people who I was on there with that were uh, incredibly good at having patience and articulating these things to me and uh, so I was surrounded by uh, a community I was and ended up in this community that I had no real um, expertise or experience to deserve a place in but I I was very lucky to be surrounded by people who were willing to talk to me nonetheless and I think part of the reason that I was able to be open to that I guess I grew up in the South Pacific in my entire life have been living on other people's territories, but it was maybe, that fact was maybe less erased in the places where I was growing up then than it was here in Victoria mm. for me at that time. And having to recognize that probably said to me, maybe maybe did a slight bit of work to decenter my whiteness and my cis hetero and normativity is. So yeah, I, I suppose that's probably what it was. Tato, would you like to add anything? So when I was married, which was like a while ago now, there was a time right before me being separated, I was starting to, like I'd always been like a hip hop kid, going to clubs and stuff like that. But I, I grew up in Toronto and for some reason the dance called me back. I don't know why I was back in clubs again. I was like, this is interesting, you know, I haven't gone out in nine years because I was with, you know, sometimes when you really, you know, hook hook up in a relationship, you're like, I'm staying home all the time, you know, you don't go out anymore, and that was happening, and all of a sudden, we're, me and my ex-wife at the time were starting to go out again, and at the time, I, for the, like, at the ripe age of, like, 32 or whatever I was, I started to to invest myself in dance as a practice, so in street dance. And what came out of that, I was also doing research at the time about street dance history and its connection to kind of like black and brown civil rights movements. So how does the dance reflect political movements and the music? Because we tend to get this idea like hip hop or funk music and James Brown as if it has nothing to do with the Black Panthers and nothing to do with you know, these movements. And I was like, that's, that makes no sense. We, we get it compartmentalized. I was like, okay, I want to put this all back together again in my own, for my own practice, because I was an artist at the time. And so it was also a social anthropological thing I was doing. And I was like, okay. So I was starting to learn the dance itself, because at some point I was just like, there's no point in reading about this. You have to become the thing that you're invested in, right? So I was invested at the time, and I still am, in a dance called Popping. Popping is like, is a West Coast style dance that's based on the robot. And really, when the people talk about it, they talk about, like, you know, black and brown people being sent to war and being mechanized in war, right? So their bodies being used in machine. And as well as the new black working middle class around the West Coast, you know, there's factories, you know, like people working in car factories and stuff. So their bodies are being used in tandem with machines. So the inspiration and the music and stuff comes from 
that mechanization, I was like, wow, there's so much in this. Mm. That's like, whoa. And, you know, I was reading some books and they were talking about, like, how the funky chicken or, like, the dog and all these dances come from, and scarecrow and puppet, like, there's, these dances come from this language of, you know, southern, like, black culture. And I was like, whoa, there's so much in the dance vocabulary that already speaks to the experience and I'm learning it through the body. And I was like, this is really interesting. And so, uh, through that, I was getting divorced, and you know, that is hard. Yeah. So one of the things I, I had to do during that time was really invest myself into uh, learning the robot to numb myself, to have the experience of numbness, or to deal with like not having to deal with all my emotions at the time. And then there was just this moment inside of that, and you know, I, I might even like be like ah, talking about it, but like this moment when I realized like, oh. Like this is this this experience of me having to use this thing, this dancing. I'm I'm going through my divorce, but I was like, oh, wait a second. As what what is this cultural tool of resilience that I've been accessing? What's what are the experiences that needed for people to be resilient? And I was like, oh, so that really connected my individual kind of life, and then this tool of collective healing that I'm accessing, right? And I was like, okay, so that's a really important thing in my life now. And so for me, allyship started with this idea that. Like, I'm a benefactor. I'm a, I'm a participant in this in this culture, and I have a responsibility to keep the fire alive in my own way. It's not really an overt part of my practice. It's more part of my personal life, actually. You know, mm. it doesn't show up in ways that are really obvious. But I have like a, you know like a ver- deep personal commitment to maintaining uh, the culture and speaking for it, and also like recognizing the healing qualities and the resilience of the culture that I'm a part of now, in a sense, like the street dance culture is like really wide, right? So like my foundation for allyship was in that. Yeah, it comes with being a part of something and I don't know, that from there it's just a mystery, right? But it was really in my body that I felt that moment of like, I don't know what these people went through in the 70s who danced this music, but I'm having some kind of experience that I can connect back. Wow, well, so to those who might need a bit of convincing, why be an ally? For me, at least the way I work is understand, you know, allyship is like a spiritual practice. So it's something you do for yourself. You know, like when you, when people think like, you maybe start public speaking and you first think, the first thing you think about is like, oh, I want to be, you know, all the rewards are out there. You know what I mean? Or maybe you pick up golf or whatever. Like you think the rewards are in getting high score or people like you or you win some money or da 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 but when you advance in something there's a point at which you, you realize actually it was never about that it's about your relationship to yourself mm. and and I think allyship is such a practice so why ally it's just it's a way of how do you, how are you going to be in the world like and I think it's really important for people to connect to that you know rooting in um, it's not about necessi- saving other people it's actually about being in relationship with what's around you and you're also there's also skills in being allied. I know that sounds wonky, but like because ally, you know, makes there's a subject object relationship, right? By default, the way the word is constructed. So I do think that's a bit of like a yeah, place where I go ah. But I think there's something about yeah, it's it's a very it's like the most basic relationship skill. And and I look at it as like you know if you're learning to salsa or swing dance, right? That's a relational skill. Yeah. Why why ally? It's like why would you want to dance? Mm-hmm. It's it's that simple to me, and I think it it actually, it's I don't you know I, it's not an obligation. It's it's like it's something that enriches your life and actually brings you deep healing, a lot of grief probably because then, as you know, I think as Sharon mentioned, like letting go of people, it comes with like as you learn more about yourself and what your true values are, you're like oh maybe these people don't fit into my life or and it and it comes with that growth process. So it's hard, but it's something you. You know, there's like a what you call a, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I love the term, but like, there's like what people typically call like the hero's journey, I guess, in it. You know, that process of like, you think it's about saving other people, then you realize it's about confronting your own demons, and then you're like, whoa, I'm in like the, whoa. And there's that constant journey, I think allyship that is, and I think that's, so I think that's a really, you know, I don't think any path of healing in a, in a person's life is complete without allyship. It's just not you. Can, you know, we live in a world that's about these relationships we have with other cultures, with other gen, you know, people of other genders, other classes and stuff. Like, your way, 
presence in the world is not a complete not i mean not to be perfect right but it's like your healing process is not holistic until you integrate allyship into the mix i think it, it's just it, it's because it's just a part of our everyday experience we're we're already in it we're already in the soup i like that idea of of the soup because <laughs> if you had turkey soup and all it had was turkey it would be <laughs> it would be really really boring right yeah. if all it was was the meat yeah. You need to have the onions and the garlic and carrots, like all the different spices. Like, yeah, if if all you hung out with was people that were exactly the same as you, it would be a really small world mm -hmm. and probably really boring. Or, you know, you might think they're the same as you. I think that's, mm -hmm. yeah. I feel like that's like one of the big well, things is we assume they're like yeah. that. Without actually getting below the surface and learning a little bit of what actually makes each of us up because mm -hmm. we've each had different lived experiences and different things that have happened in our past that have shaped who we are. So yeah, it's really important that we give everybody a chance because we all have this humanity in us and we need to help everybody to sort of grow to embrace the him the humanity in others and and i really thought what you were saying there t about um like relationship and community is really the core of it for me as well because that's being so tied in with the healing part both with the men's circle and also another big part of my life is that i work with survivors of residential school but um in both those cases and in uh many other cases it's just been like do this <laughs> like it was not that I uh, really went out of my way it was it was like you said some somebody walked in uh, here and somebody walked into your house and all of a sudden you were in this relationship that you weren't expecting to be in necessarily I, that's kind of how it felt for for me where people were like we need somebody to do this will you do this? And not not in a leadership or like glorified way, but just like doing some work. Well, and, and I guess where I'm tr trying to ramble towards is the, the healing aspect that, that Tada was mentioning. Like just the other day, we had a big survivors gathering and so often like, supposedly my role is to be there for support, like mm. to, you know, put out the food, make sure people get their travel assistance whatever and I've been involved in this work for f over like four years and I've heard these stories many times before is not necessarily anything new but for some reason I just could not process and I couldn't think of what to do so I wrote on Facebook like I can't process all these emotions what do I do and mm -hmm. and um, I got a, a lot of really great and interesting responses back and conflicting responses but one was like you're part of this like you're not just here helping other people we're all in this together like with the especially the Nixhanath folks that I work with they say like we're all in this together Amazing. and mm. that everything is connected so it's been my people's denial of that that has caused so much harm and the violence of that has been on in this case, indigenous peoples, but so many people besides. And I have benefited so much from that, but through that benefit, there's hurt there too. And it's it needs to be healed. That's not where the focus needs to be, but it's like two birds with one stone, perhaps, <laughs> to use a crude metaphor. Like, um, yeah, like I'm never just helping someone else. That's not something that happens. Mm. I think there's, yeah, that's like the, exactly what you're talking about is that's, that's why I say like, you know, I'm really also like, I appreciate your awareness of that because in, even amongst, you know, folks of color, sometimes there's divided opinions on how I speak on the subject. So I just want to honor that there's differences of voices and a variety of diversity. But for me personally, you know, like savior complex is like root and root with colonialism. Mm -hmm. So it's, it doesn't help me, at least personally, as a person of color, when white people, I mean, I hate using that word sometimes, but, you know, it's useful, it's a container, come to save me, 
because I see that as an extension of, the, of a colonial practice of saving. Like, it's called white man's burden for a reason, you know, and the whole colonial idea is about saving people from their savageness or their backwardness is the paradigm. So when, that, you know, I think you're speaking a lot to that, is actually, I think, you know, the helping work that we call it is like maybe with working with survivors of folks who, you know, went to residential school and stuff. That's like actually a healing journey of itself for the person supporting, you know, and I think that's such like an important component to show up for yourself, I think is where authentic relationship starts. Yeah, like I just hear you. I think there's a lot of, and, and I don't think it's about who, where the focus needs to be or anything, but the other t- other thing is like, you know, if white patriarchy, you know, and you represent yourself as a white man, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's like, if you have a machine that's hurting people, you have to get to the machine and not just you can't we can't always be treating the people who like are on the ground hurting from you. like some people have to go it's like we need a diversity of strategies right mm-hmm. so we do need to um whatever whatever it's male violence or you know masculine violence or it's like you know um r- racialized violence by white folks it's like somebody some we had to diversify the strategy mm-hmm. i think that's a really valuable thing and you know, again, sometimes I get critiques of like, am I supposed to be doing the work that you're doing? Like working with white people and holding space for them? Like, no, mm. no. Like uh, there's a the whole diverse set of strategies that need to be there. But it's also very important that the people who have positional power learn to use their power responsibly and also transfer it. Mm. Like responsibly transfer the power out. Cool. Wow. Well, Sharon, can you explain the importance of providing the space to allow someone to be wrong. I think the only, I've only met one person that I considered to be really wrong. <laughs> um, and she'd been told that her, her child wanted her to come and talk to me because she said, you know, I told you a couple of years ago that I was a lesbian and I've been with my partner for a long time now and now we're getting married. I need you to come to a place where you can be okay with this Mm -hmm. so we were set up to get together for coffee and Mm. I've I've had coffee coffee with um so many people um over the course of you know 10 years um and this was the one and only time that I was just stunned at the end of the hour like this woman really I, I said you do realize that if you don't change you will lose your child. And she was like, well, I got another kid. (gasps) And like, I I was just floored because usually people come because they've gotten to a place where they realize that they need help to, to learn and grow and be a bigger person. But this, this one, she just shut me down. And I just thought, wow, that, but most of the time people, people are looking to try to create a a safe space and and a bigger space so that they can you know Mm. work on themselves to be a more kind and loving person to your question of of like creating a space to be wrong that's something that we uh try to do in the the men's circle is we say we celebrate failure (laughs) in that space and we we see it as a space where like it's we we do have a set of group agreements to try to work through these things and keep it safe for those of us who are there and who are implicated elsewhere. But um, we recognize that perfection is another tool of patriarchy and we need a space where we can figure things out because so often we don't have at least the masculine role models or or male role models to model how to be a a man in a nonviolent way. And uh, so we're messing through what that might be, and and we come at it from many different and many different places, and wildly varying degrees of experience with engaging with that. But none of us are under the assumption that we know it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when when we mess up, we're like, yeah, I failed. <laughs> um, and with the recognition that we can work through these things here and hopefully cause less harm when we come up against those things outside of that room. 
so having a space to fail, I think, can can be important, and that space needs to be safe in multiple respects. Like, you have to feel safe failing, and also feel safe being in a space where people are trying to work through stuff that's potentially really difficult for at any individual in the room. <laughs> okay. Wow. Thank you. This is such awesome conversation. Okay. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have more conversation. Coming up next, CPV's production team has put together a guide for anyone who is interested in becoming an ally but doesn't know where to start. Coming up in just one moment. Stay tuned. For this episode of Taking Up Space, we're going to be taking a look at the term allyship. When discussing things like privilege and oppression in a social justice context, the idea of being a good ally and what that means is one that will come up pretty often. But it can be a tough concept to unpack. So what is allyship? There's a couple of places we can start. PeerNet BC defines allyship as an active, consistent, and challenging practice of unlearning and reevaluating, in which a person of privilege seeks to work in solidarity with a marginalized group. Kayla Reed, a queer woman of color who conducts advocacy work in St. Louis, offered a useful acronym on Twitter to help understand what being an ally means in simpler terms. A stands for Always Center the Impacted. The first L means to listen and learn from those who live in the oppression. The second L means to leverage your privilege. And the Y means yield the floor. A big part of allyship is making small changes in how you speak and interact with others, and being considerate of how your words and behaviors can cause harm, even unintentionally. In the instance that someone from a marginalized group speaks up and says to you, hey, as a trans person, or as a person of color, or a person with a disability, and so on, the words that you used or the way you're behaving really hurt me. Don't be defensive or try to explain why they're wrong to feel that way. Instead, listen to their reasons for feeling the way they do, and if necessary, ask questions to help yourself understand better. This is what it means to center the impacted, as mentioned earlier. Ask if they're okay, and when harm is done, apologize for your actions. In a 2015 interview with The Martlet, Courtney Damone, a trans woman who started a hashtag campaign called Do I Have Boobs Now while undergoing hormonal replacement therapy, said allies need to do their own work in educating themselves instead of expecting marginalized folks to do it for them. She said, Trans people have to advocate for ourselves enough, so sometimes it's hard to teach you. If you want to be an ally and you want to help out and make us feel more comfortable, don't make us teach you everything. Go out, learn about proper pronoun use yourself, learn about the difference between sex and gender yourself, and then when you have a grounding in that and you have more questions, come to us and talk to us about that. Of course, allyship is not just about listening to marginalized voices. It's also about amplifying them and making sure that your voice doesn't take up more space than it should. The Women's March on Washington that took place last January was criticized for this very thing. Organizers of the march were accused of centering cisgender, heteronormative, and able-bodied white women at the expense of women of color, queer women, trans women, women with disabilities, and so on. Despite efforts of the organizing committee to make the event more inclusive, women of color continued to report that their voices were diminished or ignored in favor of making the event more palatable to a mainstream audience. Leveraging your privilege and yielding the floor means using the privilege you've been given to help uplift marginalized voices and knowing when the right time is to speak and when to be silent. One example offered by Savon Anderson at Mashable.com is white people acting as a barrier for people of color at public demonstrations and protests, such as those organized by Black Lives Matter across the country. But even at an individual level, one way to be a good ally is to just talk to your friends who share your privilege about allyship and oppression. Part of being an ally is dissecting the ways privilege and oppression have worked in your favor, thinking of ways you and others in your social group can better affect change for those who are marginalized, 
and using your privilege to take on the burden of challenging oppression wherever you may see it. This is hard. Nobody wants to be the one in the friend group to have inadvertently hurt someone, and it's harder still to be the person that speaks up and says something is wrong. But this work doesn't need to be, and shouldn't be, something we do alone. Talking with one another and learning with one another makes the work of being an ally far more manageable, if not easier. Above all, allyship is about doing the hard work of reflecting on your own behavior and seeing where you fall short. Saying that you're an ally is far easier than being a good ally. It's about opening yourself to critique and understanding that being an ally does not make you immune from critique in the future. It's a lifelong process of learning and unlearning your assumptions and behaviors. This process can sometimes be uncomfortable or even upsetting, and that's okay. Part of being an ally is knowing that you'll make mistakes. Oppression affects all of us one way or another, even if you carry privilege with you. Being open to screwing up and learning from those moments when they occur is important. As Mia McKenzie writes in her book, Black Girl Dangerous, allyship is not supposed to be about you. It's not supposed to be about your feelings. It's not supposed to be a way of glorifying yourself at the expense of the folks you claim to be an ally to. It's not supposed to be a performance. It's supposed to be a way of living your life that doesn't reinforce the same oppressive behaviors you're claiming to be against. It's also important to remember that being an ally is not an identity. Mackenzie writes, it's a practice. It's an active thing that must be done over and over again in the largest and smallest ways every day. Of course, all of this just scratches the surface of understanding allyship and what it means both for those with privilege and those who are marginalized. There's tons of resources available to help you better understand how these concepts work in a real life context. The key is that you approach it with an open mind and a willingness to learn. And though it can be a struggle, it's worth the effort. Practicing allyship allows you to empathize with experiences that aren't your own and can strengthen your own interpersonal relationships. So much of the work that comes with dismantling oppression and enacting social change comes from building those one-on-one -on -one connections and being able to reach across that divide in the spirit of doing better and learning from one another. Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on allyship and making space for marginalized voices. I'm joined by Tada Huzumi, Sharon, and Bradley. So before the break, we were discussing points on how to be a good ally and their own journeys in becoming an ally. But now I wanna talk about uh, your experiences in practicing allyship. So this program is called Taking Up Space which is a theme that comes up in kind of all the conversations we have in each of these segments. And it's really kind of interesting in regards to being an ally because, you know, the questions change just like a little bit. For example, you know, how much space do you take up as, a, as an ally and how much should you take up? Uh, and, you know, it's always kind of difficult and interesting navigating space and taking up space. And so my question for you is, um, as allies, you know, what is your relationship with space? I think that's like one where one place where people get really, it's really tender, right? Like a, as, as a white person, as a man, am I taking up space? That's the, 
at the other side of the coin is like you know like if you the way I look at it there's like a circle there's like a cipher like a dance circle right and and you know like everybody wants to see what you're gonna do in the circle and there's something about you said space you know and navigating space there's a natural rhythm and time for you to take up space actually it's one of the things i think about right because if you're a dance circle yeah if you go in five times in a row and you're taking up you know five minutes each time and there's 20 of us and we've been here for two hours you're kind of like okay but there's also something about being like okay you step in with what you have and show yourself and that being that being a way of you participating in community so i i i think there's i think people come sometimes when i talk to people they talk about like i'm not allowed to take up space and i was like well it's like it's like a yes and no I mean, of course you're like a white dude and you're maybe you're taking up a lot of space all the time in x way but maybe there's way in ways in which we want people want to see you for you to be seen as important and valuable and it's actually a matter of attunement to your body and your sensations and the environment around you that guide you in when is the right time it's the right breath you know everybody everybody knows it's your turn everybody's like looking at you and you're like Oh, I see. I see you starting to boogie. Like I know, I know your shoulders moving. You gotta, you gotta get in there, right? <laughs> that, that's a real thing. That's a real thing, right? And I think it's important for allies, so to speak, to be able to step in there and be vulnerable in that moment. And I know it's hard because we've been told so much you're not supposed to stick up space. But there's also moments where it's actually called upon and very, very important to have that voice in there, and al- also to know when to exit. And that's actually a really embodied thing. It's not It's not necessarily a rational I, thing. You, if you try to create lists for how long you're supposed to be inside a cipher, you're going to lose it. You know, you're just not going to be able to hold it down. But but there's a natural time when people are like looking at you and taking you in. And, and you've no, it's, I think that embodied skill of knowing how to take up space is something that's really important to, um, to be talked about in social justice community. As opposed to like the lists of like what makes X thing right. Don't. That only works so far, but if you want a relationship, we want to see people dance with each other and get messy and and show themselves. Amazing. Um, Could you explain some of the, uh, maybe some of the challenges of being an ally or educating or making space? So Sharon, you talked about this a bit already when you mentioned the mother you had a conversation with. Well, I mean, not everybody is ready to be an ally. Maybe they need to go through some more growth process. Maybe they'll never be ready, you know? I mean, there are some people that just don't want to ever change. They think everybody else should change to suit them. But, I mean, you you hope that most people are going to eventually see that it's not all about them and that uh, the other people around them need space. They need to have some space that they can take up and be understood and loved. So... Yeah, and with that particular individual, I mean, I'm hoping that eventually she got to a better space, but I worry about her other kid, Mm. you know, because with with that kind of a closed-off attitude, any divergence from the path that you believe is the right one, like, you're you're sunk. (laughs) So, yeah, it was was just so sad to be part of that Mm. conversation. and I've I've thought about it so many times since, hoping that, you know, well, maybe something I said that day or maybe something her daughter had said to her resonated and, and she's given it more time and thought since then. But you can you can plant the seed, but it doesn't doesn't mean it's gonna grow. You just hope that maybe something you've said has, has opened a crack in the sidewalk. One thing that I'm constantly struggling with in my personal trying to understand what we're doing and able to do with the men's circle is uh, like there's such a broad range of experiences and it's like can we only talk to people who are already trying to be on that path and if so like that seems to me to be a, a real problem because so many other people (laughs) but uh, yeah like how when we all have 
all of us in that circle have so much that we have to learn and I really selfishly want to work on myself like like I have so much to learn but how do I relate to somebody who's going in the exact opposite direction because that's the person who I feel like I need to be talking to because we share a lot like I that that person is much more similar to me than a lot of people might recognize or, or that I might be willing to admit and like I could as easily be on a path going the exact opposite direction so it it seems like a, the, the challenge of of uh, finding a place to start sometimes I mean it's never really a start like we're all like, everybody's coming at it with something but who can we talk to I think we're all I don't know what's the best thing. We're all experts of our own experience. This is just what I feel like I have to offer to that. Thank you. So we're going to take a break. When we get back, we'll have more conversation about how to be an ally and how to foster allyship. Up next is a spotlight on PFLAG, the community resource that Sharon is a part of. That's coming up. Stay with us. Canada has, in recent years, worked to label itself a more progressive nation, one in which open discrimination of the LGBTQ community is not accepted. But that's not such a simple task, and the societal stigmas that queer and trans people face have not just been undone overnight. Too many people continue to suffer from, among many dangers to their well-being, rejection by their friends and families, and internal conflicts as they struggle with their identity. There is no one solution for the hate ingrained in this world, but an essential aspect of the healing process is the fostering of love and acceptance within the LGBTQ community. PFLAG Canada is an organization created for this purpose. The name stands for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, which is a remnant of its beginnings as a small family support group. PFLAG is now open to anyone. The Victoria branch describes the group as serving lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, questioning, and allied people, all to educate anyone with questions about their identities or the community, support those who are struggling, and work with pride initiatives to facilitate a positive sense of unity across the country. This program was founded in Toronto in the 1970s when the families of gay children began meeting to share their experiences under the label Parents of Gays. Their reach began to expand with the help of Brent Hawkes, a reverend of Toronto's Metropolitan Community Church, writer Betty Fairchild, and magazine advertisements. From there, they merged with the group Families and Friends of Lesbians and Gays and renamed themselves PFLAG. By 2003, memberships had formed across the country and they were officially recognized as a national nonprofit organization. PFLAG describes themselves as a resource for LGBTQ people and their loved ones, particularly for times of coming out or questioning. Every branch across Canada has either a phone number or email address where anyone can reach out with any question or issue they need addressed. The Victoria branch also meets at 2 p.m. on the third Sunday of every month, September through June, at the St. John the Divine Anglican Church. Any person that is a member of the queer community, questioning, or an ally is welcome to come and discuss any relevant issues of sexual orientation or gender identity. To highlight the happiness that can be found in life as a queer or trans individual, there is a section titled Our Stories on the PFLAG National website, in which over a dozen videos of people within the LGBTQ community can be found sharing their experiences finding acceptance both around them and within themselves. Providing positive role models and stories that can be related to is an essential tool for many people going through the discovery and coming out process. Here's one of the featured stories. Um, I felt that I was different from my friends before I was even sexually aware. I was gonna have to pave my own way. I, and I knew I was gonna have to do it alone. I was worried about making it through the day and um, and um, finding people that 
uh, finding people that I could get along with. High school is a very, very difficult time. <laughs> I told my sister that I was queer when she walked in on me about to uh, commit suicide. But I was 18 and she, um, and she just wanted to know why I was so miserable. And I said, this is what I am and this is why I am eventually your mom and dad will hate me. Um, and she said, don't worry, we'll, we'll find a way. Today, I have an incredible partner that has been with me for four years. Every day is a, is a fabulous day. My name is Jazz and I'm very, very queer. The rest of these testimonials can be found at pflagcanada.ca slash r stories. PFLAG Vancouver, which is BC's largest branch, has a section on their website where informative pamphlets can be accessed both for schools seeking to create a more welcoming environment to the community and for families wanting to learn how to best support their loved ones. These are offered in multiple languages and can be accessed at pflagvancouver.com resources. The national site also offers a comprehensive list of resources outside of the organization that cover needs such as counseling, religious support, and healthcare. These can be accessed at pflagcanada.ca resources. To reach PFLAG's national support line, call 1-888-530-6777. Members of the Victoria branch can be contacted at 250-385-9462 or by email at victoriabc at pflagcanada.ca. St. John the Divine Anglican Church is located at 1611 Quadra Street and the meetings are held within the Denson Lounge. Even if you don't need the help PFLAG offers, you're encouraged to get involved and volunteer continuing the cycle of support within the LGBTQ community. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on allyship, being an ally, becoming an ally, and fostering a community of allyship. On our panel is Bradley, Tadahizumi, and Sharon. All right, so we've talked a lot about how community is a big part of unlearning toxic behavior and, and growing as an ally and as a person. Um, so what has your community offered you in terms of being an ally? How has your community helped you grow? I, I think it's, it's so vital. I mean, I was thinking it back to our earlier part of the conversation about what it means to be an ally or what that word is, or if it's a good word, but... Um, and to some degree, it feels to me like it comes down to like the centering of an individual. That, what am I as a person? And I think that, like, this is not all I am, but to some degree, I'm an amalgamation of the relationships that I have with others. And uh, that f reframing away from this kind of Western individualistic, capitalistic idea, like, I am not bounded apart from anyone else. And... Um, I can't survive as an individual. And I think that's the very basis of, if you want to call it allyship or whatever. And, and so from there, I think that community to some degree is like, it's a, a, another messy word, but it, it's, it's essential. And when it comes to being an ally, it's like I said, I can't call myself an ally. <laughs> one person can't call one person an ally. It, it has to be, um, we're in a, this relationship, and and uh, if if there's no relationship, there, if there's no community, there's no allyship. I think our our role is to keep expanding community, keep talking to others, keep 
sort of stretching the boundaries of our tiny selves to become bigger people. And, and I think, you know, I mean, we go into schools and talk when we're asked to. Um, we go to conferences where we've been asked to, to speak to other parents, for instance, or teachers or resource people. We get involved with pride. I, I went to the legislature last week and spoke to members of the NDP caucus. I mean, it was quite something, but just... Think places that I never dreamed that I would ever go. I mean, I'm the person in high school that couldn't actually get up and read something that I'd written in front of the class. But just, you know, when you find something that you're interested in and passionate about, you tend to gain your voice. And I think that's the whole thing about being allied to a, a cause or whatever. You sort of, you gain a little bit of a voice to say, hey, you know, we need we need to stand up and root for each other so just trying to build community through enlarging your group all the time and and teaching others through that so i think it's one of those like love is one of those paradoxes right it's like paradoxes everywhere i think it's beautiful in the universe but like you know when you talk about community your basic relationship in in your life that really is like your relationship as a child to a caregiver that's like one of the biggest relationships you can have that really emotionally impacts you and you know, like 95% of the world, you know, our parenting is not perfect. So, you know, like when we talk about like, oh, love, you know, you can't love another person until you know how to love yourself. Da, 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 da. You know, that's like the usual self-love talk, right? Which is great. Yeah, you can't love another being until you have love for yourself. Like, okay. Okay, that makes sense. And then, and that's definitely how I work too. Like I, I talk about allyship starting with yourself. So you ally to yourself. That's your foundation. But then there's a paradox that happens. Because you can only learn to love yourself by somebody loving you. So there's a little bit of paradox that happens. And that's where, you know, the role of a therapist is like kind of giving a person like the experience of a really good caregiver. That's like the experience of attachment that you create, right? Mm -hmm. But community, I think the relationship between loving yourself and loving others really is encapsulating that kind of paradox. There's like a chicken and egg problem that when you really get down to it, yes, you need to learn how to love yourself. And at the same time, it's like, there's certain people and roles and that you can access in society to help you love yourself because they love you. And, and it's like a, it's a, that's the mystery part of all this. But I think that speaks a lot to like, why do you need community? Because you won't love yourself fully until you're with community. It's a part of self-love and it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's not a one either or thing, but it's just, I think funny, like, you know, So I hear that that individualistic Western idea of like, you know, love starts with you and you have to love yourself and self-love all the way. And then like, again, there's still that paradox. Mm. You know, it's like she, but the people who you learn to be nurtured by (laughs) are your community. And that's how you learn how to love yourself. It's like, and then you love them and it's just like a love fest. but (laughs) 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 But yeah. Totally. So on that topic, in regards to the uh, hazy space of the paradox, uh, what do you think is missing in our communities when it comes to practicing allyship and creating space for marginalized voices? What more work needs to be done? Hmm. Does anybody like quantum physics here? <laughs> I wish. Like to show quantum leap. <laughs> <laughs> quantum leap, okay. <laughs> but like, I guess it's like, you know, the idea in quantum physics is the world is not actually like what it appears to our eyes. Like a, a par- small particle can be either a wave or a particle. Like everything we think about the world changes when you actually, like your our vision gets more detailed. And I think a lot of, in social justice community, as you said, like, and, and around allyship, what I think is missing, I don't like to say it as what's missing. I think it's just a natural process of getting there too, right? It's just about, so missing, I think is, I don't want it to seem like we're not good enough already. That's not, I think that's not what I'm saying, but more like, what could be helpful is for us to see more that relationships are really different from how we're supposed to think we are supposed to be in them. Like when you actually look at social justice work as relationship work, a lot of the rules around social justice fall apart because relationship is about paradox. It's like that whole thing, you know, like you've been with somebody and you want them to change and then you're like, oh, I want I want you to change. I want you to... Da, da, da. And the, the, w- the moment they start changing is when you just start working on yourself, right? Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's like a really basic relationship paradox. And paradox is everywhere in a relationship. But 
I think that's like the level that we're like this conversation and this discussion we're sinking into is that level of where like not everything looks like what we think it does. I think a lot of social justice strategy and stuff is developed by like white patriarchal academia, sort of le- like working on it like a really mental level. So they see it very much like the way the world is. These are the shoulds and these are the obligations. But then all of a sudden, like you know, like I said about like what are the obligations? Uh, not what are the obligations? Sorry, but how do you hold how, as allies? How do you hold somebody accountable who you're allied to? And it's like a brain explosion. But when you actually look at his relationship, you ha- realize that 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 paradox has to happen or else it's not sustainable, it's not consensual, right? But when it's like, so getting down to the level of granular level of looking at relationship dynamics, I think is really, really a real missing piece, real missing piece right now. And, and, and to really honor that, like a lot of folks that we would usually call marginalized have been working on that piece for a long time. So it's just not recognized, it's not seen, but you know, when we talk about people doing bake sales or church gatherings or every time, like, you know, somebody, a white person gets invited to a sweat lodge, you know, or like, you know, somebody gets taught the electric slide or <laughs> I invite somebody to a hot pot. Like, that's where it's happening. But that work doesn't get recognized. It's not seen. That relationship building work. Instead, we recognize all the achievements and, you know, that's like a very capitalist mode. So I think the important point is to say it's not missing. It's already here, but it's unseen. And I think what we can do is to reveal that that work and, and treasure it in the community and realize, that, oh, yeah, it is relationship work. And we've already been doing it. We're already good at it. Yay. I think it's really important that people have the opportunity to show some vulnerability and be part of sharing space and, and actually listening and learning from each other, from the experiences that we've had and the... Um, conversations that we've had in the past and are to have in the future just sort of being open always to learning more and becoming a bigger person because none of us is is finished i totally agree because it's kind of interesting to be asked the question like what's missing because on the one hand it's something i think about an awful lot on the other hand i never see it on my own it's usually shown to me when i realize something's missing it's not like we should really be doing this it's somebody else going geez it sucks when you're not doing this (laughs) i mean and and again i think that it's happening it's just that we don't always do a good job and we could it's just a matter of yeah keeping keeping my ears open and taking it what i hear seriously even if especially if it's uncomfortable Mm. it's interesting um you know having an opinion and taking a side and standing up and fighting for what you believe in, especially in regards to intersectional feminism and social justice and politics, um, tends to, you know, sometimes, depending, you know, like at a dinner table or something, uh, cause a lot of divide in a lot of situations. People, you know, can lose friends over political issues, but of course you gain friends too, and really good relationships can be formed from becoming an ally as well. So for you personally, have you noticed a change in your relationships uh, since you've become more mindful of your privilege and you've started practicing allyship? I would say the, the people that I have around me are much more, much more interesting and much more, more loving and they listen better. That's you nice. know? Yeah, yeah. They don't feel like they already know it all. They're they're willing to to learn and grow. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So that concludes our panel for this episode. Thank you so so much to Sharon, Bradley, and Tara for coming in to speak with us today. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment or review the show at www.cfuvpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Anna Pollard, Miles Sawyer, Jackson Sang, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CFUV's production team. And if you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cfuv.ca to learn more. Taking up space, it wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm Anne Bernice Thomas. This is Taking Up Space. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.
Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.ca.